Now this morning I'm going to be doing things a little bit differently than I have in, in recent weeks or months even, and that is instead of <laughs> going through this chapter of Romans verse by verse, instead I'm going to concentrate on a subject. But first of all, I want to read from you from Romans chapter 6. So Romans chapter 6, and we read, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, 
The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open your word to us, and may its truths come alive, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I was saying is that, basically, just to introduce this, what I'm going to be doing today, rather than going through this verse by verse, is I'm going to concentrate on the subject that lies at the heart of this chapter. Now, that will mean that we'll get to Romans uh, a lot later in what I'm going to say, but I'm doing this this morning for two reasons. First, because I don't want to run the risk of getting caught up in the quite intricate argument of, of Romans here, and because of that, losing focus. I don't want to do that. And secondly, I'm doing this because the subject we're looking at here is of such vital importance, and yet is woefully neglected in the church of today. So what is our subject? Our subject is holiness. It's God's requirement of His people to live lives, put its simplest, lives that are separate from sin and that are consecrated, dedicated to God's service. With this being essential, if we are to live lives that are going to be a blessing to God and that bring us true ultimate, spiritual, lasting fulfillment. You wouldn't think this, though, perhaps, by the way that many Christians today, deceived and deluded by the way that we organize, arrange, and prioritize our lives. But nevertheless, this is the case. Holiness is the way to please God and to experience the joy of His pleasure in our hearts and lives. Now, we have to say, and we've said it, that there are a fair number of Christians for whom this is far from the case. Christians whose thoughts, whose minds are absorbed, not absorbed, by the thought of holiness. There are Christians like that. And there are other Christians who are absorbed by this thought of being holy. They are. It's the focus of their lives. And yet, they suffer torture because of their failure to be holy. Perhaps because of their failure in one particular area of their life. There's one particular habit, one particular sin that, that keeps on pulling them down and so that prevents them being what God wants them to be and what they so want to be. So where are we going wrong then in this whole area of holiness? Well, I think that for many of us, Jerry Bridges hits the nail right on the head when he says that our problem is that we do not understand the proper distinction between God's provision and our own responsibility for holiness. You see, we tend to overbalance on one side or the other here. We either think that holiness is all our responsibility, that we've got to do it, that we must, by our efforts, make ourselves holy. Or we decide that holiness is all of God. 
And there's nothing we've got to do in regard to our holiness. We simply have to, in the old saying, in those words, we've just got to let go and let God. Let go and let God. That sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? It sounds very much. As you look at it, what living the Christian life by faith is all about. But let me say to you, if this means, as so often it seems to, let go and let God get on with it, well then, I want to say to you that this is a passive view of the Christian life, and it's a view that we do not find in the Bible, and that in the end will get us spiritually nowhere. I much prefer the formula I once heard shared by a a Church of Scotland minister. He was in Edinburgh at the time, but he's now uh, in Claremont, East Kilbride, Gordon Palmer, who suggested, we're at a kind of student thing, and he suggested that what rather we need to learn to do is to let God and give it a go. Big difference. See what that's saying? It's saying that to grow in holiness, we need to yield to God, to submit to God. We need to open our lives to God. And then having done that, we need to give it everything that we have got. Now, that's a a better balance. And we do have to have that balance. We do have to get a balance in our lives if we really are to become holy. A balance between God's provision and our responsibility. And it's that balance, among other things, that I want to look at this morning as we concentrate on this so important subject of holiness. So let's begin then by looking at the neglect of holiness. For we've talked a a little bit about the problems that some of us who misguidedly strive after holiness encounter. Now, we'll we'll talk more about that a bit later. But let's just think for a, a little while now about the reasons why some of us who are Christians seem to be able to almost forget about holiness altogether. Just, you know, despite the the important, the prominent place that the Bible demands and God commands we should give it, some Christians seem to almost forget about it. And as far as I can see, there are two basic reasons for this. The first is self-centeredness. For you see, we live in an age where much more than any other age in history, this is a self-centered age. Self-centered, all about self. And it seems to me that there can be no doubt whatsoever that this has inevitably affected the church and has affected the average Christian's relationship with God. To put it as simply as we can for the sake of clarity, Christians today, far too many, are more concerned about being happy than being holy. We're more concerned about personal, self-centered happiness than we are about doing God's will and seeking God's glory. It's this which dominates our thinking, which dictates our decisions. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that happiness is a bad thing. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't want to be happy. But what I am saying is that our happiness should never be seen by us as all important or our first priority. In many instances, it will be a byproduct 
a result of our seeking after God. We will be happy. But our happiness should never be put in God's place, should never be seen as more important than our relationship with Him. But let me just share one instance of this that I sometimes see around, uh, just by way of illustrating what I mean here, before I go on to, to talk about something that emerges from this, that really does strike at the heart of holiness and our efforts to be holy. So, the illustration of this that sometimes bother me is the, is the criteria that people often seem to use in deciding just what church, what fellowship they should become a part of. For what kind of questions do people ask before they settle, decide to settle in a church? Maybe, do I like the minister? Do I like the preaching? That's scary. Scares me. Is the worship the style that I like? Does it suit me? Will my, will my children, my family be catered for? You know, are the people there my kind of people? Are they the kind of people that I can easily get along with? Now, you see, I'm not saying that these kind of happiness-oriented questions are not important. I'm not saying that, nor am I saying that they shouldn't form part of the equation in our decision as to which church we should get involved in. But what I am saying is that I believe that there are other questions which should, which must come first. Questions like, where would God have me be? Where as a disciple of Jesus can I best and most effectively serve Him, use my gifts for His glory? Questions which have got their heart rooted in service and submission and which are ultimately rooted in the holiness of our relationship with God. Now, you see, if, we, if after we've asked those kind of questions, we're still swithering about our decision, we're still unsure about where we should be and what we should be doing, well, then at that point, let's bring in the other questions that are more to do with personal happiness. But only then, only when we sorted the big questions out, but let me just move on to mention one particular way that this self-centeredness really does, I believe, strike at the heart of holiness. And that's in regard to our attitude towards sin. Our attitude towards sin. Now, let me just share with you again here some comments from Jerry Bridges that I first read some years ago, numbers of years ago, but that I, I continue to find illuminating and challenging and, and even encouraging. This is what he says. He says, we are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. We cannot tolerate failure in our struggle with sin chiefly because we are success-oriented not because we know it is an offense to God, but God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Obedience is oriented towards God. Victory is oriented towards self. Until we face this attitude and deal with it, we will not consistently walk in holiness. 
This is not to say that God does not want us to experience victory, but rather to emphasize that victory is a byproduct of obedience. As we concentrate on living an obedient, holy life, we will certainly then experience the joy of victory over sin. Do you see what he's, he's saying? Do you, do you see the difference that there is between wanting to be victorious and wanting to be obedient? Do you see how, how subtle sin is? I, I want to say, as soon as I read that the first time, I realized that I was face to face with at least one reason for so much of the failure in my own life. Anyway, besides self-centeredness, another reason for our neglect of holiness is, I believe, worldliness. Now, just to get a handle on what we're, we're talking about here, let me just share with you da David Watson's definition of the world, when, when that word world is used in a negative sense in the Bible. It's not always, sometimes it's about the created order, but when it's used in a negative sense. This is his, his definition, which I find helpful. He says, world refers to everything in life which does not come under the lordship of Christ. Now, do you see what that means? That, that the old understanding of worldliness that used to be around, maybe still lingers on, that worldliness was about places you didn't go to, things you didn't go to, people you didn't associate with, something that developed into often uh, a kind of black and white legalistic code. But you see, that's wrong. It, it, it's too wide and it's too superficial because not everything in life is black and white. Some things are, but there are lots of gray areas in life. There are things that are different for different people, things that for me to do them would lead me into temptation and worldliness, but not for you, and vice versa. And this is far too superficial. For it's all about externals, things outside us, things we do, places we go to, people we meet with. It doesn't ask the real questions that need to be asked. Questions of the heart. Is Jesus Lord in my heart, in this situation, where I am, when I'm doing whatever I'm doing? But now you see, we live at a time in the, the church's history where, where, by and large, that old rule book has been thrown away. And the cry now is, we're free in Christ. We have liberty in Christ. But you know, largely, God's people still haven't got it. Because, you see, true Christian freedom is about the fact that we have been set free. Yes, we have. Set free, though, to live with Jesus as Lord. Set free to live the kind of life whose result is holiness. But living a Christian life that's about doing what you want, going where you want, with who you want, that is not Christian freedom. That's not liberty. 
It's not. That is license. The kind of license that leads to worldliness. And this is the road down which in the church and in this country I think we've been walking over recent decades. Little by little, the standards of the world, the heart of the world, the thinking of the world has infiltrated the church. And it didn't happen dramatically. It didn't happen overnight. And that's the biggest danger. Because as we're told in the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15, it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. It's little, bit by bit, drip by drip. And D.L. Moody sums up, I believe, what has happened here in our time in a very apt word picture well-known saying. He says, talking of the church, the place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. And that, I think, is what has happened. For more Christians have got in contact with the world out there in recent years, and you know, that's great. That's great. We have to get in contact with the world if we're going to evangelize the world. And that was the mistake that was made in the past. We didn't get in contact. But now we are. But you see, too often, we're not separate from the world in our hearts. We're not holy. We've not kept Jesus as Lord. And drop by drop, the sea of this world has got so far into the church that now we're almost waterlogged. We're waving as we go down. Christian moral standards, Christian biblical moral standards, biblical standards that a generation ago were accepted without question in the church, are now, well, if they're not actively ignored, are certainly not seen as essentials for Christian living. We see this in relation to, to married life to relationships, family life, business ethics, our attitude in work, etc., so that now the standards of the average Christian are not that far removed, if any, from their non-Christian neighbor and workmate. And yet at the same time, they are so far removed from biblical standards as to make holiness of life seem unattainable. Even something that's so spiritually weakened by worldliness, too many have no real desire for. So you see, we read the words of men like David in the Old Testament, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or words like Paul's in the New Testament. Philippians 3, verse 8. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. But you see, now, what are these words for us? What do they mean to us? Are they just part of a long-forgotten, never-to-be-repeated history? Do they speak of an experience that we feel is above us and beyond us? Or do these words awaken 
in us a desire for the same kind of quality, the same kind of holiness of life? The way that we answer that question, I think, goes a fair way to telling us just how waterlogged by this world we are. Well, so far then, we've established that holiness is something that is often neglected by us. But you know, that, that begs the question, what do we mean by holiness? We've kind of skirted around the edges of this. We've said that it means being set apart from sin and being consecrated to God and, and His service. But you know, that's the, the usual kind of accurate, yet slightly superficial definition that we give. If we're really going to be holy, though, I think we need a deeper understanding of what holiness really is. Let's try and dig into that as we move on to look at the nature of holiness. The nature of holiness. And you know, I think that the, the most important thing that we have to grasp here, if we are going to understand what holiness is really about, what we have to get a hold of is that when the Bible uses that word holiness, that one word can mean one of two different things. That is, it can mean holiness as a state, something that we are, or it can mean holiness as a process, something that we have to strive to be. Now, let me just give you examples of what I'm talking about. First, holiness as a state. Hebrews 10, verse 10, it says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. Now, you see, what this is talking of is, is of the fact that, that God sees us in Jesus as our faith is in Him. God sees us through Jesus, through the one who died for our sin, the one who removed that barrier that once separated us from God. And that as God sees us in Jesus, He sees us in perfect holiness in Him. Now, that state of holiness is God's gift to us. The moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's how God sees us. However, further on in Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, 14, there we read, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, you see, here, holiness, we see, is something that's to be strived after. Holiness is a process that we need to more and more grow and develop into. And then in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, these two aspects of holiness are there put together in one verse. For there we read, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, that is those made holy in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy. So then, we are through Christ made holy in our standing before God, and then we're called to be holy in our daily 
lives. Now, do, do you see the relationship between the two here then? Do you see, well, do you remember what we said earlier about the need to get the balance right in our holiness between God's provision and our responsibility? Boy, it all starts here. Our state of holiness in Jesus is God's provision. It's all of God, and it is a precious provision. Because it is because we know that we are holy to God in Christ and acceptable to God through Him, it's because of this that we can stand secure in our salvation. When Satan tries to bring all sorts of doubts into our mind because of our lack of personal righteousness, we stand in Christ. We are holy in Him. And our striving to be holy on this foundation, to be in this life, what we are in God's eyes, now and for all eternity, this is our responsibility. Not as part of the basis of our salvation. Our holiness doesn't, could never make us acceptable to God in any way. Only the perfect life of Christ offered as a sacrifice could do that. But you see, as an outworking of our salvation, this is most certainly our responsibility. It is our responsibility. And we can be sure that the same Holy Spirit, remember, who brought us to faith in Christ, the Spirit will place at least the spark of a desire in our hearts to live a holy life as a love offering to Jesus. And you see, if we don't have this desire, if we didn't have it at conversion, if we don't have it now, at least that little spark, despite how far maybe we may have backslidden, if we don't have that desire, well, then it really does have to be questioned whether we actually are and have been converted, whether the Holy Spirit really has done a work in our lives. For as 1 John 3 verse 6 says, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. That is what that means is, no one who makes sin again the characteristic of their life without real regret for what they are doing to Jesus, no one who does this can really be a Christian. And if we perhaps have this spark of desire, but we don't in our lives do what's necessary to bring it to full flame, I want to say to you, how much the poorer we will be spiritually. How much the poorer for holiness of life, separation from sin, commitment to serve God, to live for Him, and to glorify Him, this is the key to everything that is good in the Christian life. I mean, holiness is required for fellowship with God, real fellowship with Him. In Psalm 15, verse 1, David there asked the question, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? The answer, he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. That is he who is holy. And holiness also is, is vital in regard to prayer, to ongoing communication 
with God. For again, David says, this time in Psalm 66, verse 18, he says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And we could go on here, on and on, but I want to say, it's not that we have to be perfect before God can work in us and bless us in our lives. It's not that. But we do have to have a desire to be holy. We do have to be serious about holiness. Well, finally, and just for a minute or two, let's finish and let's look at the nucleus of holiness. And here, what I want is to begin to do, we, we haven't got really time to do any more than make a beginning, it's just to try and get down to the kind of nitty-gritty of the teaching of the Bible that will actually, I think, help to enable us to be holy. And here we're moving a bit more from talk to practice. And in order to do this, we turn to Romans 6. For in Romans 6, verse 7, we find there two tremendous verses of promise. It says there, we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Great promises in regard to holiness. But you know, very frustrating for many of us who to our shame and sometimes, yes, to our torment, because of our, our sense of failure, feel that we've found these promises of God to be something less than true in our lives. How then can we change this situation? Well, let's go back to that old formula of looking at God's provision and at our responsibility. So, what has God provided here then? Well, it's all to do with that phrase that's repeated again, time and time again, in one form or another, in this chapter. That phrase, death to sin. Death to sin. A death that it's made clear that we share in as by faith we unite ourselves with Christ. Just an example, verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? But how have we died to sin in Christ? How? Verse 18, I believe, makes that clear. Because it says there, we've died in the sense that you have become, no, sorry, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You see, we died to sin in Christ in the sense that in Jesus Christ, by our faith in Him, we have been set free from sin's rule, from sin's dominion, its power and authority. Now, that doesn't mean that sin can no longer influence our lives. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that sin can no longer rule over our lives. Jesus, by His death, has broken that chain. He says, free from sin's tyranny. That is God's glorious provision for us and for our holiness. What's our responsibility? Well, verse 11 and 12 contain, I think, the heart of that. 
It says there, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, it goes on, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, basically then, our response, I think, is twofold. First, to count ourselves dead to sin. That is, I think, to, to keep before ourselves, to remember again and again, and to, to meditate on this truth, this fact, that in the essence of our being, no matter how we might feel in that moment, but in the essence, in the cross of Jesus Christ, sin's rule has been defeated. And then remembering this, to decide in our will, on the basis of that truth, not to sin. As verse 12 says, Therefore, that is because of this fact, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now, as we fulfill our responsibility in, in accord with God's provision, I want to be clear, this isn't some easy recipe for instant and complete holiness. It isn't. Because as we all know, willing ourselves to do what is right, though we have a new life in Jesus, isn't always easy. It isn't easy. Because although we have had that new spiritual beginning in Christ, and although sin's rule, its domination has been broken, yet still, while we're in this fleshly body, the remnants of the old man, of the sinful nature, still remain a part of us. And because of that, sin can still exert an influence on our lives. But you see, what this tells us, though, is that when this happens, it is our responsibility. That when we sin, when we fail to be holy, when we fall, we can will and choose to do otherwise. So you see, we're not so much defeated as we are disobedient. And of course, there are other resources in Christ besides that great initial breaking of the, the stranglehold of sin that can stop this from happening, at least repeatedly happening in our lives. Resources such as the indwelling presence of Christ that we know through the Holy Spirit, and God's Word and prayer, reaching out to God through prayer. But I haven't got time to go through all of these. So let's finish by remembering and rejoicing in what God has given us in Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 18. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Let's meditate on that truth. But let's do more than that. Let's realize it. Let's live it. Let's live our lives in the light of it. Let's come and pray. Father, we thank You for all that You have provided for us in Christ. That You've broken that dominating power of sin. That You've placed in our hearts that desire to be holy. Lord, You've given so much, but we do have a responsibility 
in our fleshly body, in our weakness and sin, we have to make that choice. We have to remember what you've done and then choose to live to please you. Choose to live in obedience to you. Father, we pray, help us to make that choice for you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.